Welcome to the podcast of Christ Church in Town in Jacksonville, Florida. We are seeking the renewal of all things in Jesus Christ. Towards that end, we are committed to cultivating personal transformation in Christ, an uncommon fellowship of racially and economically diverse individuals, and the flourishing of our neighbors. To join our local body in membership or financial support, visit ChristChurchInTown.org. I mentioned a little bit ago, we're starting a new sermon series uh, today, a series in the book of Isaiah. Isaiah is uh, one of those monumental books of the Bible. It's one of those books that as we study it, it helps us to know uh, who God is and who we are. It helps to tie together really the entire plot of the Bible from Genesis through the Gospels and into Revelation. We've called our series in Isaiah, The God Who Saves, because over and over again, in countless ways, Isaiah introduces us to the God who saves, to the God who brings uh, saving power to his people in all sorts of distress, whether it's as his people faced uh, their own sin and their need of forgiveness, as they faced uh, the corruption of their culture and their society, as they faced the threats that they were facing from external foes, that God shows himself to be the God who saves. In this way, it's often been called, Isaiah, I love this, has often been called the fifth gospel. In addition to the gospel according to Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, we have the gospel according to Isaiah. And if you think about it, when we come around Christmas time, Lent, Easter, Oftentimes, the readings that we pull from the Old Testament to help paint a picture of Jesus are readings from Isaiah, right? It's there that we learn that he'll be called Emmanuel. It's there that we learn uh, that he'll bear the wounds and the, the punishment for the sins of his people. So that in Isaiah, we start to see a picture emerging of the God who saves and the one through whom God will save. And so, This morning, we are going to begin our look at Isaiah. Fittingly enough, in Isaiah chapter 1, we'll be looking at the whole chapter, but we will uh, just be reading the first 20 verses of Isaiah chapter 1. So if you're willing and able, would you stand for the reading of God's Word? Our scripture reading today is Isaiah chapter 1, verses 1 through 20. The vision of Isaiah, the son of Amoz, which he saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem in the days of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah. Hear, O heavens, and give ear, O earth, for the Lord has spoken. Children I have reared and brought up, but they have rebelled against me. The ox knows its owner and the donkey its master's crib, but Israel does not know, and my people do not understand. Ah, sinful nation, a people laden with iniquity, offspring of evildoers, children who deal corruptly. They have forsaken the Lord. They have despised the Holy One of Israel. They are utterly estranged. Why will you still be struck down? Why will you continue to rebel? The whole head is sick and the whole heart faint. From the sole of the foot even to the head, there is no soundness in it. But bruises and sores and raw wounds, they are not pressed out or bound up or softened with oil. 
Your country lies desolate. Your cities are burned with fire. In your presence, foreigners devour your land. It is desolate, is overthrown by foreigners. And the daughter of Zion is left like a booth in a vineyard, like a lodge in a cucumber field, like a besieged city. If the Lord of hosts had not left us a few survivors, we should have been like Sodom and become like Gomorrah. Hear the word of the Lord, you rulers of Sodom. Give ear to the teaching of our God, you people of Gomorrah. What to me is the multitude of your sacrifices, says the Lord. I have had enough of burnt offerings of rams and the fat of well-fed beasts. I do not delight in the blood of bulls or of lambs or of goats. When you come to appear before me, who is required of you this trampling of my courts? Bring no more vain offerings. Incense is an abomination to me. New moon and Sabbath and the calling of convocations, I cannot endure iniquity and solemn assembly. Your new moons and your appointed feasts my soul hates. They have become a burden to me, and I am weary of bearing them. When you spread out your hands, I will hide my eyes from you. Even though you make many prayers, I will not listen. Your hands are full of blood. Wash yourselves, make yourselves clean. Remove the evil of your deeds from before my eyes. Cease to do evil. Learn to do good. Seek justice. Correct oppression. Bring justice to the fatherless and plead the widow's cause. Come now. Let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they shall become like wool. If you are willing and obedient, you shall eat the good of the land. But if you refuse and rebel, you shall be eaten by the sword, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. This is God's word. It is absolutely true, and it's given to us in love. You can be seated. Well, man, Isaiah jumps right into the deep end uh, when it comes to addressing his message to the people. You know, I took, I remember taking in uh, college a creative writing class. I had to take so many, you know, humanities courses, and I took a creative writing class. Um, and it was a fascinating class. I remember sitting there with the professor on one of the first days. And as we were reading, you know, you'd read fiction, you'd write fiction. And he'd say, one of the marks of great literature is how the author gives you a sense of the characters, right? How the author helps you to become so familiar with the key characters of the story that you feel like you know them. And a good author doesn't just describe the characters to you. He doesn't just uh, write a description of them, but he or she shows you the characters. Through their actions, through their words, through their relationships, you develop a picture for who these characters are. And then, as an example, my English teacher handed out copies of about 15 different Hardy Boys mystery novels as an example of how not to write. Now, I was a little offended because those were my favorite books as a kid. I loved the Hardy Boys mysteries. But what he said is he said, I want you to open these books and I want you to look on the first page or two because every Hardy Boys book, and there's got to be a hundred of them, Every Hardy Boys book, within the first two pages, will give you the following information. Frank Hardy is a year older, he has dark hair, and he's tall. Joe is a year younger, he's shorter and blonde. 
And he says, it doesn't matter what else is going on in the story. It doesn't matter if they're on a boat, on a plane, in the wilderness. Within those first two pages, you'll learn that Frank is tall, old, and dark, and that Joe is younger, shorter, and blonde. And he went around the room, and sure enough, within the first page of every book, he got told these exact definitions and descriptions of the Hardy Boys. Well, Isaiah is seeking to do a lot the same thing as he starts his book. He's trying to introduce us to who the main characters in this story are going to be. And Isaiah uh, is a brilliant author. This is one of the most beautiful and deeply poetic books in the scriptures. He's a master at characterization and telling his story and bringing God's words. And so he seeks to introduce who these characters are. Because, and what's important about this is that Isaiah's main characters are the most important characters that you will ever meet in your life. They're the characters that to the extent that you know them, your life will be shaped by them. And who are the chief characters in Isaiah's story? The main characters that he's going to try to introduce to us in the first chapter are God and ourselves. Right? The main characters of Isaiah's story, there's going to be kings, there's going to be Assyrians, there's going to be Babylonians. We're going to do some work to explain who all of these characters are. But the main plot of Isaiah is God and his people. God and the people of Israel, who we are going to come to see is us. John Calvin, uh, at the beginning of uh, his magnum opus, The Institutes of Christian Religion, says that there's two equally important things to know in this world, and they depend on one another, God and yourself. That you can't really know yourself apart from God. Which is true, right? I mean, some of us are here and we've been trying to understand our lives and ourselves. Why we do the things that we do even when we don't understand them. What gives shape and meaning and purpose to our life? And for Calvin and indeed for Isaiah, you can't know those big things about yourself until you know something about God, why you were made, how he feels about you, what he wants for your life. And you can't know God until you come to know yourself, who you are, what you long for, how you're made. And so Isaiah introduces us in these chapters to God and ourselves. Uh, really, the first five chapters of Isaiah function like an introduction. Uh, in, when we get to Isaiah 6, we have the famous story of Isaiah's call Right When he sees God in heaven and God says, who shall I send? I'll go. It's this amazing story of calling for Isaiah. But if he doesn't get called until the sixth chapter, if the story starts in the sixth chapter, you go, what, what's going on in chapters one through five if the story hasn't started yet? And it's somewhat like an overture to a symphony, right? Where they, the, the band plays the tune and some of the movements of the symphony before it gets started, and so he's going to introduce some of his main themes in these first five chapters. And then in chapter six, the narrative is really going to get going. But he starts by introducing us to God himself. Look at how uh, the story is introduced. Isaiah begins with, this is a vision of Isaiah. Right? This isn't, uh, although Isaiah is a master 
uh, with words. He paints incredible pictures. These aren't just uh, prophecies of Isaiah's own literary craft. This is a vision, right? It's coming uh, in a series of revelations from God through Isaiah's gifts and personality and convictions towards his people. And it begins in verse 2 with here, right? Again, this is God addressing his people. So though Isaiah is the preacher, Isaiah is the prophet, this is coming from beyond Isaiah. This is God revealing himself and speaking his message to his people. And the thing that Isaiah wants us to know at the very outset of his book is that the God of Israel, the God of Isaiah, is a God of love. That God is a God who relates to his people through love. Look at what he says, Hear, O heavens, and give ear, O earth, for the Lord has spoken. Children I have reared and brought up. Let's pause there. That God, when he begins speaking to his people, is speaking as a father to his children. Right? He's not speaking, uh, first off, as a judge towards a guilty party. He's not speaking, first off, as mighty creator over tiny humans, although he is that. He addresses them as a father speaks to his children. I've raised up children, and they've wandered off. God comes to his people and he relates to his people by love. In Isaiah, we're going to hear God referenced by these different relational images that describe his love. Like he's like a father to children. In one, uh, in one set of passages, he's going to describe himself as like a husband to a wife, like a shepherd to his flock. These are images and metaphors of love. It's love that drives this entire story forward. It's love that prompts God to send Isaiah as a messenger to his people. It's love that drives the central plot of the story. Now, there are other attributes of God that are going to take, that are going to kind of take turns taking center stage as we go through the plot of Isaiah. And indeed, God has a lot of other attributes right? That God is also righteous and just and holy, that God uh, is uh, omnipotent and omnipresent and omniscient. There are all of these attributes of God, but there's nowhere in the scriptures that any of those other attributes take the form that we find love taking, right? It's only love that John says in 1 John 4, God is love. Right? There's no place where it, it says that God is those other attributes. Right? Yes, you can use righteousness to describe God, but does, God doesn't limit himself to say, I am righteousness, or I am justice, or I am wrath. He says, I am love. And my justice grows out of my love. My righteousness goes out of my love, even my holiness, even my wrath. There's going to be moments in Isaiah where God comes to his people in discipline where he threatens them with negative consequences should they continue on in their rebellion. But it's always motivated by a heart of love that desires to see his children return to him and return to life. The structure of that love in the Old Testament is the structure of the covenant, that God relates to his people through covenant. Think about when God leads his people 
out of slavery in Egypt and there on Mount Sinai, what does he say to them? He says, I am the God who brought you out of Egypt, right? He leads with his love. I've, I've loved you. I've rescued you. I've, sh- I've poured my grace on you. Therefore, have no other gods before me. Don't bow down to an idol, right? The entire Ten Commandments. In that basic structure, I am your God who loves you. Therefore, love me, love your neighbor, live faithfully with me. This covenant bond forms a relationship of love between God and his people. As the book starts, God is coming to his people with a complaint that they have broken the covenant, that they've broken that arrangement, that contract, that pledge of his love. What's going on here, I love it, you know, it's a, it's a vivid picture. When God lodges a complaint against his people, it looks like a court scene that's as big as the earth itself. God calls his witnesses, hear, O heavens, and give ear, O earth. Right? He's basically saying, look, God is calling Israel to come and calling the earth and the heavens to bear witness about what's going on with them and in their life. His love prompts him to pursue them, even in the midst of their wandering and their waywardness. So, let's stop here before anything else and be, and be, and be clear and press the question. Wherever you are in your spiritual journey, right? whether you have been walking with Jesus, uh, whether you've been believing uh, as a Christian for a long time, whether you're here uh, because you're curious about the Christian faith and the Christian scriptures, the God that you have to deal with is a God of love, right? The fundamental aspect of God that presents himself to you is love, right? We like to, you know, whether through baggage of our upbringing, some of us, uh, you know, can't come into church with a different idea about who God is and what he's up to, what he wants out of us. Others of us, you know, we, we like to think of our struggles to believe in other terms. We tend to think of them as primarily intellectual Right? I've got questions about creation, I've got questions about infinity, I've got questions about pluralism, I've got all these questions. So some of us think we have primarily intellectual questions. Others of us think our questions around faith are primarily moral. Right? How can, in the light of all of the evil that the Christians throughout history have done, in light of all of the crusades and the holocausts and, the, and all of the damage that the church has done, we have moral ob- objections to faith. But I love that Isaiah says, look, those things, those things are real, right? We do have a mind. We do bring questions about the, the content of belief and how we can believe, right? We do bring real history and real questions around uh, the morality of faith and unbelief and all those things. But Isaiah says, look, before we get to any of that, God loves you. The, the first instance in which we have to deal with God is like in that awkward moment. Some of you are married or you've been through this with other in dating relationships. That awkward moment when somebody first says, I love you. And you go, oh man, I gotta say something. I wasn't prepared for this. Right? That God comes to us and his first word to us is, I love you. And it often leaves us stammering. Well, I, um, yeah, I like you. I've, you know, I've been to church for a long time. I like going to church. God says, no, no, I love you. 
What will you do with my love? Will you accept it, return it? Will you enter into a relationship of love? Or will you make reasons, will you find other ways? And God says, no, no, before any of that, deal with my love for you. Because that's the God of Isaiah, the God of Israel. And then Isaiah gives us an introduction to ourselves. He's introduced us to his God, and now he gives us an introduction to ourselves. Spoiler alert. It is not an altogether pleasant introduction to ourselves. Right? Isaiah is less concerned, it seems, in introducing us to ourselves with our self-esteem than he is with us coming to an accurate self-awareness of just how deep our problems go with God and with one another. Because you see, this story of your life that begins with love, begins with the love of God, making us in love, pursuing us in love, doesn't end there. Because, right, we're not just, according to Isaiah, God's children. We're his children who've wandered off, right? Uh, He says that Israel is a child of God who's wandered away from their father. We're not just God's children. We're God's rebellious children. When Jesus in Luke 15 goes to tell the story of a man with two sons, remember that story, the story that we'll call the the story of the prodigal son. He has two sons and one of them says, dad, give me my share of the inheritance now so I can wander off. Squanders his inheritance and wild living in a far country. When Jesus tells that story, he wasn't just making up an analogy or making up a parable out of the blue, right? He's drawing on Isaiah. He's drawing on the history of God with Israel saying, you are like a wayward child. You are like a child who left his father's house, left his inheritance, and has become bankrupt in seeking out, trying to find life on your own. And so just as in the prodigal son, in that great story, just as the father runs after the son on his way home, just as the father leaves the party to go pursue the older brother sulking outside, In that same posture, God sends Isaiah to his people. That Isaiah, the story of Isaiah, is the story of a father pursuing his children, saying, come home, come back to the one who loves you and who made you and who calls you. God sends Isaiah, even though knowing that his people, we're going to get to a point where God, when he calls Isaiah, says, go, preach to a people who are never going to listen and are never going to understand. Right? Pursue my people, even in their hard-heartedness, out of my love. And part of what Isaiah has to do in pursuing uh, these wayward children of God is to try to bring them to a sense of themselves. Right? If you remember the story of the prodigal, it's when he finds himself eating slop from a pig trough that he looks up and goes, man, what's happened to me? Right? I had it so much better at home. I should go back to my father. And what Isaiah knows is that people will rarely repent. People will rarely get up, turn around, and go back until they hit that moment where they go, oh my gosh, what has happened to me? How bad off am I? And so Isaiah, in this chapter, begins his work of painting a picture for these people of what it looks like to leave the Father's house. He's trying to bring them into a place of accurate self-knowledge and self-awareness. You know, I, I love this, uh, this little quote. This is from uh, 
William Kilpatrick was an educational philosopher of the 20th century. He tells this story. He says, a colleague at Boston College once asked the members of his philosophy class to write an anonymous essay about personal struggle over right and wrong, good and evil. Most of the students, however, were unable to complete the assignment. Why, he asked. Well, they said, and apparently this was without irony, we haven't done anything wrong. Kilpatrick says, we can see a lot of self-esteem here, but little self-awareness. Right? Culturally, we value uh, self-esteem, positive self-regard, and affirmation. Right? And for good reason. <laughs> we were made for affirmation. You were made to be loved and delighted in. You were made to know that you matter and that you belong. All of that is true. But culturally, we often value it at the expense of accurate self-knowledge. Right? At the expense of recognizing, oh no, if I think that I'm someone who's done nothing wrong... <laughs> If I think that I'm someone who's so valuable that there's nothing wrong within me, then I miss the chance of coming to know myself as I really am. And actually, there's no one more dangerous in the world than someone who doesn't know their capacity for evil. For someone who doesn't know their capacity to hurt others, to abuse even themselves, we have to come to know ourselves as we really are. And Isaiah paints this picture that the people have become sick and beaten and wounded from head to toe. Verse 6, from the sole of the foot even to the head, there is no soundness in it, but bruises and sores and raw wounds. They're not pressed out or bound up or softened with oil. He says, look, to the people of Israel, the, the, the disease that you have affects you from head to toe. In the head-to-toe there is a metaphor from, from the greatest of you, right? From your kings, from your princes, from your priests and religious leaders, all the way down to the everyday people and to the poor. That the entire body from head-to-toe has grown sick. And there is no one to satisfy. There's no one to bandage the wounds. We're told that there were people in Israel, the false prophets, who went around telling the people, oh, look, it's not so bad. Right? God hasn't judged you. God hasn't forgotten you. Your sins aren't so bad. And I say this is, no, no, it's really bad. It's really bad. The cancer's gotten into the bloodstream, and it's everywhere in the body, from head to toe. This is the tragedy of the Old Testament, that Israel, God's beloved child, loved and brought into covenant with him, meant to be a light to the nations, meant to be different from the nations and to care uh, towards God and worship, towards their neighbors and mercy and charity and justice, then made to be a light. Instead, they became just like the nations, no different than their neighbors. And that's what God is doing here and what Isaiah is doing when he likens them to Sodom and Gomorrah. If the Lord of hosts had not left us a few survivors, verse 9, we should have been like Sodom and become like Gomorrah. Hear the word of the Lord, you rulers of Sodom. Give ear to the teaching of our God, you people of Gomorrah. Right? Sodom and Gomorrah, that, that Genesis story of kind of the, the representative evil of the nations. Cities that uh, were so wicked that God judged them in the moment. There's not much of a worse judgment that can be imagined for a king of Israel or for a priest of, uh, of Jerusalem to be called a ruler of Sodom or Gomorrah. He's saying, look, you're made to be different, but you're just like 
The problems that are out there in the world, the problems that are in your neighbors, the problems that were in Sodom and Gomorrah are in you as well. The message of Isaiah is going to show us over and over and over again that from God's perspective, the biggest issue, the biggest problem, the biggest uh, thing that concerns him isn't the sin or the waywardness of the people out there, right? It's not uh, the post-Christian culture. It's not the, it's not the people on the outside of the church. The greatest concern that God has is with the heart and state and righteousness of the people of God, right? That it's not the Babylonians or the Assyrians who are going to be the main kind of antagonists in this story that concerns Isaiah. It's the brokenness of his people, the brokenness of the church. It's important for us, I think, as a church to recognize this, that the problems that we face The problems that we deal with before God are fundamentally the problems of our heart, of our love for our neighbors and for one another. To put it in contemporary terms, if you're looking at the cities where the problem comes from, it's not with Hollywood, it's not with Washington, it's with the city of God itself, with the church. In fact, uh, in the verse just after where we broke off our reading, God says how the faithful city, that's Jerusalem, has become a whore. Strong words, right? A a people who are made to be faithful to God have gone wayward and become like a prostitute. What does this look like for the people of Israel? Well, in in chapter one, and this will get played out over and over again, the primary place of their covenant breaking gets seen in two places. First, it's in their neglect of justice for the poor. Um, You know, God calls them to love God with all their heart, soul, mind, and strength, and to love their neighbor as themselves. And he's going to draw on two instances of their failure to love. Their failure to love their neighbor, shown primarily through their forgetting the poor. Verse 17, learn to do good, stop doing evil, seek justice, correct oppression, bring justice to the fatherless, and plead the widow's cause. Right, love for neighbor gets tested most at the place of how we care for the most vulnerable, for the poorest, for those who are fragile and in need, to give justice to those, to treat fairly those who can't help us back, who can't offer us anything in return. And God says, look, you have, this is the place where you're supposed to be most different than the world, a place where the orphan is taken care of, where the widow is looked out for, where the poor receive justice. And instead, you failed to do that. The rich oppress the poor. The powerful get over on the powerless. You failed to love your neighbor. And then if that wasn't bad enough, while failing to love your neighbor and to care about the poor, you failed to love God by going about your worship as though everything's fine. Notice that, that, I mean, that's probably the hardest part of this chapter to read when God says, you can pray and I'm not going to listen. You can spread out your hands and I'm not going to see. Right, what they're saying, he's describing them going through the motions of worship while their hearts are far from God. And these aren't motions they weren't supposed to go through. This is them following God's commands to worship him in the temple, but while their hands are stained with injustice and hatred towards their neighbor. One of the things that the prophets confront again and again is this, this hypocrisy of Israel. 
The fact that they'll keep their heart cold towards their neighbor. They'll forsake justice. They'll neglect the poor. And then they'll go to worship as though everything's just fine. In fact, uh, we think it was one of the major dynamics that drove uh, Israel's idolatry and their sin was the idea that, you know what? We're good with God because we have the temple. We're good with God because we go to worship. We're good with God because the priests are in there doing their sacrifices, killing their animals again after, again and again and again, day after day, right? God will never judge us as long as we keep doing what he told us to do in the temple, right? As long as our religious lives and our worship and our, and our ideas about God remain pure, as long as we do the right stuff in religion, we don't have to do the right stuff in our relations. That God will give us a free pass because of our worship. But God says no. This is a sign that you've now, you don't love your neighbor and you really don't love me. You've forsaken us both. And I think it's worth pausing here because this sounds very Old Testament to us, right? This sounds like, oh yeah, back then God did things like judges people <laughs> for uh, their neglect of the poor. But now we have Jesus, right? Now we have grace. What Isaiah is saying is not at all different than what James says in James chapter one, verse 27. Religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. Right? James is doing the same thing Isaiah did, saying, look, profession of faith has to line up with a lifestyle lived in love for your neighbors, in justice for your neighbors. It's very similar to what Jesus does in the first chapters of Revelation, when he speaks to the churches and says, repent, recover your first love, return to me. And so the story that's going to drive Isaiah forward is through these two characters, a God who loves his people and a people who rebel against their God. How can these two things live together? How can a God who's committed to loving his people, who's committed to pursuing his people in love, save and rescue and redeem a people who are committed to wandering away from him. Well, we see by the end of this reading a third character that Isaiah is going to introduce to us. It's the character of the Savior. It's the character of the Redeemer, the Messiah, the Servant, the King. Right? This is a character who's going to start off kind of hazy in the book of Isaiah. And he's going to build as we go. But Isaiah, stroke by stroke, is going to begin painting a picture of Jesus. He's going to begin painting a picture of the only one who could ultimately reconcile a loving God with a sinful people. And it's going to grow sharper and sharper over the 66 chapters of Isaiah. That it's in him that this plot will find its resolution. We see it in chapter 1 in a couple of places. The first is in verse 9. If the Lord of hosts had not left us a few survivors, 
right? One of the ideas of Isaiah, one of the main keys of Isaiah is that no matter how faithless Israel gets, there's going to be a faithful remnant of people that God preserves, that God brings back from exile and plants and builds again from them. Somewhere he's going to call it like a stump that's, that's cut down until a sprout, a green sprout, grows out of the trunk of Jesse, who would be the Messiah. That God will sustain through all of the wandering and wickedness of his people. That he's not going to judge them all. He's not going to wipe them all out. There's going to be places in the story where this remnant looks so small, you don't imagine that it's going to get through it. In fact, uh, it's going to get so small that by the time of the New Testament, the rem- it's essentially a remnant of one. One faithful Israelite who keeps covenant with God and then who builds around himself and his followers a new Israel going forward that God will have a remnant through which he'll bring a savior. And what will that salvation look like? Verse 18, come now. Let's reason together, says the Lord. I love the way this starts. Loving father to his wayward kids. Guys, come on. Let's sit down and talk about this. Let's reason together. Though your your sins are like scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they shall become white like wool. He's just judged their sacrifices. He said, I don't care about slaughtered sheep and rams and goats. I don't care about what you do in the temple. And yet that what they did in the temple was made to be their washing. It was made to be where they brought their sin. But he's saying, look, your, your sacrifices can't make you clean. Your sacrifices can't wash you fully. Even when they're done from a pure heart, they can only get you so far, and yours are far from done with a pure heart. For you to become clean, it's going to take me washing you, myself, with my own hands to make you white. You know those commercials uh, for detergent that come on? I think it's usually a Tide commercial where they have, you know, it's always a white t-shirt or a white, you know, button-down shirt. And they throw like red Kool-Aid on it or show a kid dropping and splattering spaghetti sauce all over the white shirt and it gets a stain on it. And they go, here's the before shirt, and it's nasty. And then they go, here it is after it's been washed with, tied with bleach. And they pull it out, and it's just this radiant, spotless, brand, you know, beautiful shirt. Isn't there something when you watch that, and you go, listen, that's not how it works. <laughs> like, I have stained enough shirts in my life. I've raised, I'm in the midst of raising kids. Um, I myself can't get through a, you know, much of a meal. Like, I'm going to... I'm going to change before I eat lunch. I'm not going to eat lunch in a white shirt. Right? You know what happens when you get something like that, something like grape juice or spaghetti sauce or something on a shirt. You wash it and it maybe gets 75% of the way gone. It gets a little bit cleaner. And then you wear it over and over again. It happens enough. You go, man, this shirt's just never going to be the same. I need to either get a new one or stop buying white shirts. So the secret of those Tide people, when they make this, you want me to tell you how they make that commercial? It's two separate shirts, right? They, they splatter one of the shirts and they go, oh no. Then they pull out a new one and go, look, it's clean. The washing that Jesus offers isn't just 
All that the sacrifices for sin could ever do was smear it out a little bit. What Jesus offers us isn't a half-washed shirt that's never going to be as clean as it once was. What he offers us is a new shirt. What he offers us is his pure, spotless, righteous record on behalf of our own. We bring our sin. We bring uh, our mess and our dirtiness, our guilt and our shame. And he doesn't just get it 75% of the way gone. He puts his shirt on us, his perfect, righteous, holy shirt. So when the Father looks at us, he doesn't see our waywardness and our wandering and our stains. He sees his son. He sees his beloved. I'll end with this. Thomas Watson, a Puritan preacher on this chapter, writes this. He says, have you repented? Right? Have you come to that place where you admit your need and turn in faith towards Christ? Then God looks upon you as if you had never offended him. He becomes a friend to you and a father. He will now bring out the best robe and put it on you. God is pacified toward you and will with the father of the prodigal son fall upon your neck and kiss you. Have you been penitentially humbled? The Lord will never berate you with your former sins. After Peter wept, we never read that Christ berated him with his denials of him. God has cast your sins into the depth of the sea. How? Not as a cork that floats, but as lead. Oh, the music of our conscience. Conscience is turned into a paradise. And there a Christian sweetly finds solace and picks flowers of joy. The repenting sinner can go to God with boldness in prayer and look to him not as a judge but as a father. He is born of God as in an heir to the kingdom. He is encircled with promises. He no sooner shakes the tree of the promise but the fruits of God's grace fall to him. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you that as broken and sinful as we are, in your love, you remain committed to seeking us, to finding us, and to covering us with your perfect life. Lord Jesus, joined to you, wrapped in your holiness and your righteousness, we are the beloved of the Father. And so, Lord Jesus, I pray that you, by the power of your Spirit, would impress this into our hearts, that we would approach God as our Father who loves us, that we would not approach him covered and weighed down with guilt and shame, but that as your beloved sons and daughters, we would know your love for us deep in our souls, and that out of it we would love you and love our neighbor. And it's in Jesus' name we pray, amen. Thank you for listening to our podcast. If you would like more information or would like to help support the local body of Christ Church in town, please visit our website at ChristChurchInTown.org.